This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. And welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm pleased to introduce you to Christopher Rice, also known as C. Travis Rice. Christopher is the recipient of the Lambda Literary Award and is the Amazon Charts and New York Times bestselling author of A Density of Souls, Bone Music, Blood Echo, and Blood Victory, and Bram Stoker Award finalist, The Heavens Rise and the Vines. He's an executive producer of The Vampire Chronicles and The Lives of the Mayfair Witches, the AMC television adaptations of the best-selling novels by his mother, Anne Rice. He joins me today to talk about his career and latest novel, Sapphire Storm, the third book in the Sapphire Cove series. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Christopher. Thanks for having me. Christopher, I'm happy to have you here. And I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? Uh, Failing as an actor in college. That's really where I began. Um, and by failing, I mean going from having been the theater guy in my high school to not getting called back for a single audition when I went to Brown University. And I was just crushed. Like I could not, I, I just, it was not what I had envisioned for myself. I really thought I was going to take their theater department by storm. They were all going to feel really lucky I was there. And they apparently did not, uh, at least for the first year, I ended up as the prop guy on an original musical that the writers bragged about having done consecutively more and more acid while they were writing it. <laughs> the prop list included Afterbirth, Human Bone. I mean, it was just like I was losing my mind. I just, I, my ego had been completely smashed, but I had always been a voracious reader and I had always had some idea or some some vision that I would perform in stuff that I would write for myself. So when the other outlet was taken away, the computer and my dorm room were right there. And so I would go through a day of classes and then I would go back to my room and I would just write something. And in the beginning, I was writing almost entirely dramatic writing. I was doing plays and screenplays because uh, I think the idea of tackling a novel was way too overwhelming to me at that at that point in time. I didn't think I could do a novel when I was a freshman in college. I thought it was going to be too much work. And I was a child of the movies and also a big sort of Broadway guy. And so that was where my orientation was in the beginning. But what came out of that were a lot of the seeds of a lot of ideas that would eventually become my first novel. Yeah. When you were in high school, first of all, where'd you go to high school? 
I went to Isidore Newman School in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is also where Peyton Manning went to high school. All the Manning boys went to high school <laughs> at various times. I was there as, at the same time as two of them, I believe. Okay. And what, what were some of the productions you were involved in uh, when you were in high school? Well, you know, we did a lot of of easy stuff. <laughs> I was the one who was always trying to get us to do absolutely impossible uh, musicals. Like I wanted to do Sondheim and Sunday in the Park with George. And they're like, let's see if we can do George M first before we do <laughs> Sunday in the Park with George. So we did. Um, I remember my big crowning achievement was I played Sheridan Whiteside in The Man Who Came to Dinner, which is a really old Kaufman and Hart comedy, kind of a dated uh, play, but one of those fast paced comic, a million characters on a single set. It was the same playwrights as You Can't Take It With You, which is far more well known. Mm. Uh, and I was in the wheelchair the whole time playing the nasty, um, sarcastic, uh, radio personality who had broken his leg visiting this normal American family and then ended up stuck in their house and basically took over their house. So that was that was great. And that was a lot of fun. And, um, and on the musical front, I, I think I probably went to the only high school that had a tradition of doing a Gilbert and Sullivan show every four years. I mean, they were afraid of the logistics of Sondheim, but Gilbert and Sullivan was apparently <laughs> on the slate. And so I did one of those, I believe, while I was there. That fell on my freshman year. So I did a yeah. lot. Yeah. I, I was Sir Sagamore in Camelot. Uh, I had oh. one line. I had one line, which was how benevolent. And uh -huh. uh, over the three nights of the production, I would add another you know, word to it, like or, yeah. or a different inflection and tone. But I was supposed to be Mordred. Um, I don't think our uh, theater, the woman who ran our theater group, uh, appreciated that I uh, auditioned as Hannibal Lecter, you know, doing Mordred. <laughs> so I <laughs> immediately that was, it was a no go. You know what? And I don't know now they would probably not bat an eye. That would just be, you know, you, you would already have your audition up on TikTok and it would have gone viral and you would be young Hannibal. That's um, right. Apparently that Silence of the Lambs was, was too fresh in people's minds in, uh, you know, 1991 oh, yeah. or whatever oh, that yeah. was. Oh yeah, absolutely. I was talking, my best friend, Eric Shaw Quinn, who's also a brilliant writer and we do our podcast together at the dinner party show. He um, he said the best role, and I'm going to blank on the name of it now, but it's in a funny thing happened on the way to the form. And I, I I don't know it's who who it is, but it's the old guy that they tell to walk in seven circles around the hills of Rome. <laughs> and at random moments in the play, he just comes out on stage with his cane and goes second time around. <laughs> Third, and he, oh, you, you had, he said, you do no work, you get a huge laugh, and you just sit backstage and read a book for most of the show. I saw that with Nathan Lane and uh, Marklin Baker on Broadway, uh, oh, probably twenty that. plus years ago. It was, it was a great yeah. show, a great yeah, show. Totally. But, but going back to your days at Brown, um, you mentioned, you know, sitting in front of your computer, you know, because we, we, we're probably a couple years apart. I think I have a few years on you. But what was this computer you were writing on? Because I know what I had in my dorm room at the University of Connecticut in those days. So I'm sure you had some kind of mean machine. It looked like an old TV. It was a chunky, boxy <laughs> thing. And they were trying to roll out, and and I didn't type in the sort of classical queer team method. I was a, like a hunter and pecker. And so they had the split keyboards. Remember those that were supposedly better for your hands? And I, I just learned to work around. So I think I had one of those and the big mouse. And, you know, and it was it was like... In a way, it was more immersive than a laptop is now because it was bigger and you had to sort of like, 
give yourself to it. You had to sit at the table and be part of it. And and if you got into the zone, it felt like a like you were you were in the world of your desktop. Yeah. So what was the the first thing you remember writing sort of long form, you know, back in back in those days? I remember there was a we I think I was in a class where we had read the play, I believe it's Therese Rakan, which is about um if I'm remembering it correctly, it is about an adulterous couple who are basically destroyed by what they do. I think they may even set up the murder of the of the of the wife or something like that. And and she gets disabled. It's a really dark play. So I wrote a gay version. I wrote a version with two men. <laughs> that was the first thing. And I don't know where it is. And I don't know if it was any good. And then I wrote a screenplay which was so over the top, it was just insane. I mean, it was, see, I was this, coming to terms with my sexuality and I had this hunger to see these big budget, big canvas entertainments with gay characters that were absolutely not being done by anybody. And when I talked to people about the type of story I wanted to see and do, they thought I was absurd. Because at that time, if you were gonna write anything gay, if you're gonna write a gay movie, it needed to be very independent, it needed to be very small, it was an art house flick. And they were usually screwball sex comedies or they were um, really dark trauma focused historical pieces, right? So um, I didn't, I. I I consumed all of that because it's what there was that was available, but I had a desire to see like action heroes be gay and defending your, your boyfriend and all that sort of stuff. So that was what started to, that became the through line of all the projects I was experimenting with. Yeah. And then do you remember, you know, what, what was your first success in terms of writing? Well, I would say, um, I, uh, so this is what happened. My I left Brown because I said what I want to do is become I want to get some formal writing training and screenwriting. So I transferred to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. I was in the program there. Um, I wasn't really liking New York. I wasn't connecting with New York. I think I was a little too young to be in New York on my own. And I really wanted to move back home. And I did. And then I met some friends out here in Los Angeles where I live now. And they were like, come out here and we'll make a movie together. You know, like it was that naive. Well, we'll just start writing. Indie films were, were a thing. We'll do indie films. It won't cost us anything. It won't cost anybody anything. It'll just work. Uh, and, and and nothing really came of that. But I got a call while I was out here that my, my mother had gone into a diabetic coma. She had no idea that she was diabetic. And she had progressively gotten worse and worse and worse. And... Um, she was rushed to the ICU and I dropped everything and I went to be with her. And this was in the days before cloud computing. You were asking about desktop computers earlier. Yeah. I didn't have floppy disks on me or anything. And I, when I wasn't at the hospital, I had to start working on something because I was going out of my mind. So I had this short story on a hard drive there that I had read at a reading series, which was not normal for me. I didn't write short fiction. And I just started tinkering with it and playing with it. And it got longer and longer and longer. And it was a very, uh, it was inspired by my high school experience in, in New Orleans. Clearly the experimentation with it was driven by being back home sort of against my will and face to face with all these memories. And it turned into my novel, A Density of Souls, which was the first novel I ever published. And there were months between that first burst of inspiration and, and it being anything that was remotely publishable or submissible. Yeah. To the publisher. But that was really how it started. So it, it is interesting to me 
that the two big bursts of writing inspiration in my early life were as a result of having my plans derailed. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, that's kind of the universe putting you in the right place at the right time, certainly under unfortunate circumstances. I mean, your mother going into a, a diabetic coma. Yeah. Um, and then, but putting you back into your, this hometown um, of yours and, and kind of having all those memories and how far removed were you from your high school years at that time? Well, I said, I was probably at the time, if I had stayed in college, I would have been graduating college. So it was around 2000. So I was about four years out. So they were still pretty fresh, far fresher than they feel to me now. You know, they're <laughs> hazy and distant now. I'm in my four, turning 45 next week. So, yeah. yeah. But certainly, you know, having that first success at 2021, 20, 22, maybe. I mean, yeah. that's, um, that, that's, that's pretty amazing, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, it's well, certainly not a, not an overnight success because you've been at it for a long time, but but still, you know, young to have that kind of success. Well, I, I was also very fortunate. I mean, you know, my mother was a very famous writer and that did open a lot of doors. And I think that probably shaped in large part how the book was published and when it was published. And I th I think that there's no point in denying that fact. But I also think when you roll the dice on anything, it could it could come up snake eyes you know what i mean and and the book connected with an audience the book connected with an audience largely made up of young gay men who were hungry for the type of story that i was hungry for you know we were coming out of a of what was considered a there had been a great sort of flourishing of gay writers writing about gay life particularly in the wake of the aids epidemic and to hear the publishing executives tell it, the market had gotten oversaturated and there'd been a collapse in terms of sales. So, so a lot of writers who had been getting really rich, generous deals for writing, sometimes really dense academic nonfiction works about the the what at the time was really called the gay community. The LGBT rainbow hadn't come together yet solidly, but they they were suddenly shown the door. And so, but what that period had left the audience with was this taste that a novel about gay people had to be um, usually upmarket literary fiction, and it had to be a social chronicle, and it had to be politically urgent and important, all of which were noble things. And a lot of great books came out of that. But there were people who wanted the genre material. There were people who wanted stuff that was a little more popcorn. Um, and, and I was one of those people. And the book a density of souls gave them that it was when people called it a pot boiler, I didn't get offended. It was supposed to be kind of like Sidney Sheldon inspired, you know, but with a, with a makeup to the central characters that maybe you weren't used to seeing. Yeah. Well, what did you learn about yourself during that period of time? You know, kind of going from, um, you know, desire to, to be an actor to, you know, trying your hand at writing to now having this success under your belt. What um, what big lessons did you learn about yourself? Well, I think, you know, there there is the desire to do something and then there is the reality of actually doing it. There is the desire to move out to L.A. and again, try to be an actor, as I did in college and encountering a complete unwillingness to do the work, the footwork of that, a complete lack of desire to go to acting class, at, at not wanting to do an audition that's the reality of trying to be an actor in Los Angeles. And that's what most actors are doing all the time. You know, as Eric Shaw Quinn always says on our podcast, the Jennifer Aniston experience is very limited. If you were really passionate about acting, you better fall in love with a couple things. And they're not being on the cover of Vanity Fair that because that's too rare. So discovering that I really had not much of an appetite for what I thought I should be doing or what I saw myself as doing and that my passion 
and my commitment was to something I always thought, eh, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, you have to sort of learn those things about yourself in the doing of a thing. And I was willing to spend hours and hours and hours copy editing a manuscript. And, you know, I was willing to uh, spend hours and hours researching an idea and it was not who I thought I was going to be. So I think what I learned was you need to sort of allow yourself to change and getting older and maturing is about letting, letting go of old illusions about how adulthood is supposed to work. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, at 48, I still have delusions about how adulthood is supposed to work. Yeah, <laughs> you know? We all do. I mean, it's a constant letting go. I'm still letting go. Yeah, I have I have three. We have triplets. Um, they oh, wow. are they're about to turn twenty one next month, which is unbelievable to me. But you know, seeing them in adulthood now, I mean, certainly young adulthood. But you know, they they'll call me and they'll be like, "Hey, you know this this whole thing about cooking for yourself." Um, <laughs> you know, and you know, my my daughter was uh, or no, my son was was you know bitching to me yesterday about you know his roommates not doing dishes and just like leaving the apartment a mess and right. I'm like. This is what you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, this is, is what you were this is what you were waiting for, right? It, welcome to your so freedom. <laughs> yes, welcome to your freedom. Yeah. I I remember the the despair when the pilot light on the water heater went out for the first time in my apartment here in West Hollywood and I called my dad and I was like, "Well, are we getting a new apartment?" Like, "What how do we <laughs> what do we do?" He's like, "No." Yeah, and I was like, "Light the gas. That's terrible." I mean, it's an old school water heater. A lot of people yeah. have tankless now. And and yeah, you learn you learn about what it's like on yourself. But I have to say, I did have real support for my parents along the way. So I can't, I can't brush that off, you know? And, you know, my mom would always tell the story of how I called to ask her assistant in New Orleans to order me a pizza in Los Angeles. <laughs> she just like walked into the office. She's like, wait, what are you doing for him? <laughs> him to order his own pizza. This is ridiculous. Well, I so, mean, it is, it is hard to find good pizza in Los Angeles. I mean, that's, you know, it's hard to find a lot of good things in Los Angeles, but pizza is pizza is one of them. The Italian community here is not as strong as it is in other cities. No, but I will say Mulberry Street Pizza is, um, yes. you know, in uh, where is it? Beverly Hills, maybe is uh, absolutely makes a decent New York pie. Um, they do. Uh, so, so moving to like throughout your career, um, you're learning a lot about yourself. You're probably becoming better as a writer. I have to imagine. How does how does your approach to writing change? Uh, you know, between now and then, let's say, you know, between then rather and then and and now. Well, primarily, I stopped uh, sitting down each morning, believing I would write the entire book in a day and get it over with, and then go back to doing what I really wanted to do. That was no matter what you said otherwise in the beginning. That was a, that was a dominant thought in my head, and learning to break down the process into bite sized pieces and to view. You know, everybody, everybody groans about word counts, but your word count is your friend. You, it's, like, it's like a half full, half empty dichotomy. The word count means you're breaking off a manageable piece and you should feel good about achieving that piece in a day. Yeah. And um, that's really what changed the process, because before that, there was this sense of miserable dissatisfaction at the end of every day that I hadn't gotten further. And there's really no agreed upon sense of how far you should get in a, in a day. I mean, Stephen King is 2000 words a day and Cleves is 1500 words a day because I listen. I'm always like listening for people who reveal it. Then you talk to some romance novelists, they're 5000 words a day. I mean, so you got to find what works for you. And I think I usually find that after 1500 or 2000, 
it starts to get loosey goosey. And what I love to do is sit with those words all day and scrub them up and polish them and move on. And I always say, so to answer your question more directly, it was about becoming more realistic and consistent with my daily process, you know? And, you know, the other bigger piece of it, the more philosophical and maybe even spiritual piece of it is um, you got to let expectations around individual projects go. Nobody, it's the old William Goldman line about Hollywood. Nobody knows anything. You know, like I have written books for publishers that everybody thought they were like, these are the rules. This is what you want. We want you to do. It will do this. It will be great. And those have been some of the least successful books of my career. So there's no telling what the market will do. There's no telling what the next Twilight or Fifty Shades or the Nightingale is going to be. Like sometimes we can see groundswells building up around a particular genre, you know, and it seems poised to break out. But people make false predictions all the time. I, I remember sitting at at lunch with um, a really high powered New York publishing person many years ago who just gave me this really confident explanation about why a certain thriller author was never going to work in the United States because he was just too British. And that author was Lee Child. Mm. And so I, you know, however many months later, he is one of the most successful authors in history, you know? So people just don't know anything. And I think, you know, you have to getting back to the sort of behavior discussion from earlier, you have to be doing this because you love the doing of it. Yeah. You have to, if you're not fully invested in, in it, um, if, they, if that's not your passion, I mean, you mentioned before, yeah. you know, your, your passion clearly wasn't in doing the auditions, the classes, all those things you have no. to do to, you know, perhaps, you know, make it onto the screen. If you're not passionate about what you're writing, um, you know, if you're not, if you're not in love with the process of it, because it's, it's all, a, I think it's all about the journey, you know, the, the, the destination getting it published is that's all great. But if you're not having yeah. fun, writing what you're writing and and living in that world that you're creating. And it's um, you, you, your lack of passion might show up on the page. Yeah. And I, the definition of getting published is changing. It's, it's changed so much since I started, you know, the idea that if you do have a manuscript you've really worked on and you can't get it through the door in New York, that you can publish it yourself. And the opportunities for, for you are, are not guaranteed but there's a potential there that wasn't there before. I mean, when I started publishing, the term self-publishing was just said with utter contempt. I mean, right. it was it was like, you know, and and ironically, one of my good friends and one of the publishers of Sapphire uh, Storm and the Sapphire Cove series, MJ Rose, who I think you've had as a guest, yeah, um, she broke that trend. She self-published when self there were no indie platforms, and she really figured it out and built an ad model for it, and she made a name for herself. But at that time, that was just absolutely unheard of. And now it's this third option. I know New York publishing people hate it when you say that because they still believe they bring things to the table that you just can't get from an indie experience. And I think a lot of them want to be the sole gatekeepers for what gets through, but that's really over now. You didn't mention MJ Rose. And that just brings a smile to my face because I love that conversation so much um, yeah. that I had with her. Yeah, um, she's, she's, she's fantastic. And, and the, uh, the, the whole story about her grandmother just, uh, oh, yeah. just makes me, makes me smile. Um, but you mentioned Sapphire Cope, um, uh, Sapphire Storm, uh, talk to me, what, what can you tell us about Sapphire Storm? I know we can't give away spoilers, of course, but, uh, what could you share with us about uh, your latest novel? Well, you know, the spoiler is they end up happily ever after because it's a romance novel. So everybody knows that's the spoiler. I think um, it's the third in a series, but it's very common in romance series like this to have each book be a jumping on place because they all focus on a different relationship, a different couple. And that's true of Sapphire Storm. So you can really start the series 
in all three places, which is not true of a lot of my other series. It's not true of the Burning Girl series. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, so that's fun. It was a series that was born in a really dark time. I, I wrote the first novel in March of 2020. So a date seared in all of our collective memories. <laughs> and I needed, I had actually started working on it before then, but I didn't become serious about writing it. And I needed to go to a sunny, bright, happy place where gay men fell in love and found happy endings. And uh, it was it was modeled after a resort in Orange County that I couldn't get to during lockdowns. Uh, it's kind of a combination of the Ritz-Carlton and Laguna Niguel and Montage in Laguna. Um, I needed it to be a place where I could safely escape. I was simultaneously working on a, a novel with my mother at the same time. And so because I was stuck at home, I split my days in half. And so the darker work with mom was first thing in the morning. And then the afternoons and evenings were devoted to Sapphire Cope. And when Blue Box Press and I first talked about the series, they committed to doing three books. So this is the third in, of those three. And, you know, this is the fun thing about romance. I, I, some people who are not in the genre may see it as limiting is that you have this trope list you can always pick from. And people like some tropes and they don't like other tropes. And the ones in play here are age gap. There's an age difference between the two heroes and enemies to lovers, right? Which is a classic romance thing. Like they hate each other when they meet and then they discover they were destined for each other. So both of those are, are those are in play with this. But I think the fun thing about having an interconnected series like this, where the location is really the unifying factor, is that you can branch out into different areas, topics, themes, subject matters for each individual book. And the last book really dealt with bullying, homophobia, and addiction. Uh, in a way that was challenging for some readers, but was still very much in the context of a romance novel. This is about Hollywood. This is Hollywood comes to Sapphire Cove and it's not all spotlights and uh, roses. So it was a lot of fun to write. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly different, different genre from, you know, what you started in. Oh yeah. Uh, which is why I'm, I'm guessing you're using a, a different name for these, uh, for these books. Well, you know, and the thing that I say to people about the different name, because I call it an acknowledged pen name, and they said, why are you doing this? And I said, there are a couple reasons. I need to let readers know this is different, like you just pointed out. I need to let readers know that a plant is not going to be possessed by a demon and eat someone in these books. <laughs> I need you to know that they are going to end up together and nobody's going to get horribly murdered, which are really like hallmarks of almost everything else I've written outside of the C. Travis Rice name. So um, that's part of why I'm doing it. But also, I didn't want there to be any secrecy or shame about it. I have no shame about romance. I have no shame about male-male romance. I didn't want there to be any sense that I was trying to hide that it was me. But I also didn't want to mislead people that were expecting another thriller. Right. Right. So some, some monster coming out of the cove. Right. No <laughs> monsters coming out. Of the cove. Maybe in a dream sequence, right? Somebody has a dream about a monster. Uh, what's it like writing in in two very different genres? I mean, and how do you you know how do you manage that just inside your own brain? Well, you know, a lot of what helps is reading shifts, right? So as if if it's going to be a total shift, because in the beginning it was half and half, right? It was uh, it was dark in the morning and light in the evening. But if it's if I'm going to go back and forth, like I'm leaving one thriller behind and going to a romance, I read a lot of romance to get in character. And I'm such a voracious reader. I say that one of the reasons I write is so that I can have something to read every day for work. You know what I mean? So um, that's really, really what helps. And it gets me inspired. I'm not one of those hyper cautious. I don't want anybody else's 
thoughts in my head. I think that people ultimately write exactly what they should be writing. It's not really, there's outright acts of plagiarism, which are well-documented and well-known, and that's right out and not a good idea. But getting inspired by tone and mood and, you know, romance is defined by a general optimism about humanity. Romance really, I think, says beyond the there's someone for all of us, which is maybe true or maybe not true. Um, there's this idea that if we act in a selfless way, we can create kind of a, our, our relationships will improve, you know. And so you see depictions of family that are very hopeful and you see family members that are that are for the most part supportive of the relationships, all that sort of stuff. You enter a world in which the most optimistic outcome is celebrated and the characters are rewarded for their vulnerability, which is the opposite of usually where I'm entering in a thriller. In a thriller, a character is being punished for their vulnerability and that injustice needs to be remedied or you know uh, they need to be protected. All of those can play into a romance, but I think the thing that was so attractive to me and the reason that I as a gay man can read a lot of straight romances, particularly by Nora Roberts, for whom I have an enormous amount of respect, is there's always a network, a family network or a community of friends around the main characters that's very uh, healing, for lack of a better word. And I see, I hear a lot of people say, I will read Nora Roberts, not necessarily for the romance, but for the sisters or for the girlfriends or for the people who run the ranch. That's It's really warm. It's like a TV show you return to every week, like Cheers, you know, because you love all those those characters, although they're pretty, they're nicer too. They were pretty mean to each other on Cheers, <laughs> which I loved, but it's not right. necessarily a romance. If you, if you could go back in time and, and like tell your, you know, maybe it's a, the younger Christopher who's at Brown um, sitting in front of that computer that, that you would one day be writing, um, you know, gay male romance novels. Would, would he have believed you? No. He would have laughed in your face. He wouldn't have known what they were. First of all, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have had any understanding of what a romance novel is. And if, if there's just no sense at that time that I would have thought I was writing anything incredibly violent and dark. There are moments of violence in these books, like there are moments, but they're very spare and they're they're about saving the relationship. But in in that moment, the world that I was living in felt it's ironic because it was pre 9-11, right? It was still, it's regarded now as a time of innocence, right? The go-go 90s, the economy was good and and we weren't at war with anybody and the Cold War was over. And so, but there, there was a sense that um, being a gay man was still very, very difficult. We were still just a hair's breadth away from the AIDS epidemic being radically transformed by new medications. The older friends I had were racked with grief. A romance novel? You gotta be kidding me. And I honestly think, um, this, this publishing movement would have happened, I don't know, 30, 40 years earlier, if it hadn't been for the AIDS epidemic. I think the AIDS epidemic brought in a time where everything that we wrote needed to be urgent and political and about recording a world that a lot of people thought was going to be lost in a community and a culture that they thought was going to be lost. But right before that moment, there'd been a novel called Gaywick by Vincent Verga, which was a, which was kind of a hit. And it was a Gothic romance in the style of what was popular in romance then, but it was about two men. And I think if AIDS hadn't hit like an anvil, we would have seen a lot more writers like Vincent Verga and a lot more books like his, um, become popular, at least in sort of New York literary circles and then filter out. But that was cut off. So yeah, I, the, the answer's a giant no. I just, I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't have had any conception of what these books were. And to be honest, and it's a, it's a controversial topic for a lot of people, female authors really paved the way for this genre. You know, they invented the romance novel as we understand it in a commercial and literary sense. And then they were the ones who began writing stories about two men together. And I, when men got up in arms about it, I, I, I wanted to say, well, first I, I joined them because I didn't know anything about it. And then I started reading them. And I, I said, you know, unless you're willing to make a contribution to this genre, I don't really see what you're complaining about. This is not a, a business that closes its door to male authors. If anything, uh, if a gay guy like me starts to write them, he's welcomed with open arms before anybody knows anything about the book because he's viewed as an authentic example. But it's an authentic example of something that that women have chosen to build and to include gay people in. So. I think it's been a fascinating journey, but I think for the that young man just would not have known what this was or that it was going to come into being at all, much less something for him to participate in. Yeah. You mentioned kind of one thing you get, you get out of reading romance novels. And I know you mentioned Nora Roberts was, you know, there's always these elements of, you know, family, uh, family support, community of friends. How important for you as an author is family support and having sort of a community of friends um, in your life? It's incredibly important. I, you know, my best friend and business partner, my producing partner, my podcast co-host, also a brilliant and hilarious writer, Eric Shaw Quinn, is, is really m my person. Like, we're not romantically involved, even though everybody thinks we are. But So if you're a, a tall, British, bony-faced crime solver, you should call Eric right away because that's his type. Um, <laughs> we are, but he knows the demons of which I speak and vice versa. You got to have a friend that you can call and say, I just, as he once did to me, I want to throw it all in the trash. I'm printing it out. This is back when we had to print them out. You know, now we email them and I just want to throw it all in the trash. And I was like, we all feel this at a certain point in the process. That's really important. I, I think when I began working in the romance community, I got a better and tighter group of writer friends because there is a more communal share the wealth vibe. I got it to some degree at mystery conferences. I made some good friends, but, but, but the romance world was, uh, you know, took the attitude that they had been the first ones to really figure out eBooks and independent publishing in a way that could benefit a lot of writers. And there was really a share the wealth mentality that I'd not encountered in other genres. Other genres were far more competitive overall. There's plenty of competition in romance, but when you have a writer who's made a lot of money selling her backlist independently and she po does a long blog post about how she did it and what she recommends and how to calculate the value of your backlist titles that's a big deal that's a big deal because that's that's not a group of writers fighting over limited shelf space anymore so i got a you know my eric named them the passion posse my fellow romance authors that i go to conferences with but i think yeah it's 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 about talking to people on a regular basis who a take this seriously which a lot of people don't, who realize how hard it is, you know, to quote Queen Nora again, if it were easy, everybody would do it. And to um, talk you through your low points. Yeah. I mean, I know in addition to writing, um, you are executive producing uh, television. Um, what What do you, uh, what's, have, did you find that challenging at all? Kind of moving from sort of a, the page as a medium to, to a visual medium like, like television? Well, when it comes to the um, the AMC series, I have no comment and must refer all inquiries to AMC. 
Um, I think that the other television projects that I have worked on, mostly in development, you're that what is challenging, the difference between screenwriting and dramatic writing and writing a novel is you do not have access to an internal monologue for your characters. That's that's the main difference. And a lot of writing coaches have have counseled about how to deal with that. You know, I think there was a wonderful example I read in a writer, a writing manual or a screenwriting manual years ago that showed how the screenwriter of Terms of Endearment, right, which is based on a great Larry McMurtry novel, had taken a page of prose that was mostly Aurora's thoughts mm -hmm. and converted them into dialogue. That's really the big challenge is like, how can you tell the story through what you can see and hear, you know, because you, you do lose access to all that other stuff. Now, I would say to to counterbalance the point, um, too much of that other stuff in a novel can run you afoul of your story. It can, it can draw you too far away from a narrative spine. So it is a balancing act. I think what's the primary difference is that it, anything with film and television is just far more collaborative. There are just a lot more people involved. There's usually a lot more money involved. It's expensive to make a film or a television show, far more expensive than it is even to print tons of copies of a novel and give it a really robust publishing budget. There's just a lot more stress. I mean, you can find stressful people in publishing and I've worked on books where there was a lot of money on the table. And, um, I, uh, you know, there was a sense of stress and pressure and a lot of different people giving notes and that could feel similar to a TV project. But for the most part, you know, if a, if a book flops, I don't know if a lot of people blame the editor, like if a TV show or a movie flops, there are a lot of people to blame. Yeah. I interviewed Terry Hayes, who wrote um, Mad Max, the original Mad Max. And, and he he wrote a, a wonderful thriller called I Am Pilgrim that was a big hit in the UK. And then it came out here and he did a tour here and I did an event with him. And he said, I realized early on there was going to be nobody else to blame. Like when a movie, goes, you can say the director was crazy. The producers slashed the budget. We didn't know. But with a book, it's all us. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I want to switch gears for a minute because I always like to get to know my guests through uh, other ways. Uh, one of those ways is pop culture. So I'm curious, Christopher, uh, oh, yeah. when you were growing up, uh, what were some of your favorite TV shows? Oh, Dallas Dynasty. Give me any any nighttime soap from the 80s. I was it. You know, I, I became one of the only fans of the Colbys, which was the Dallas, uh, excuse me, Dynasty spinoff. And my mom came around the house one night and said, why have you turned all of the televisions in our house to the Colby's? And I said, I'm trying to keep the ratings up. <laughs> and she was like, okay, this is not how ratings work. We are not a Nielsen family. Like this is, a, it was crushing. But today I can't get through an episode of the Colby's. It's just dreadful. But um, but I loved this, the steamy sort of, uh, like I said, pop boilery, um, you know, family drama, all that sort of stuff when I was young was really what I loved. And then, Later on, as a teenager, it became more about the West Wing and things mm. like that. But I, I always love, and this is something I try to capture in the Sapphire Cove series. I love the um, uh, that communal feel of an environment, usually a special rarefied environment. So that was that. And then there was the scary stuff. There was Jaws, man. When I saw Jaws at five years old, I was changed. There was my life before I saw Jaws, and there was my life after that first scene where she swims out and just the most terrifying film ever made. So, I, I still won't swim in open bodies of water. It's hard. It's hard. We don't know what's down there. Yeah. My new thing is, and I think this is because high def TV has gotten so good. Anything, and it'll just be a nature documentary where the camera 
sort of hovers at the very surface of the water and there's darkness blow, and then I just give me chills talking oh, about yeah. it. I've gotten no. to the point where I look away from the screen. Yeah. No, no, can't, I can't do it. Um, you mentioned Dallas and dynasty. I, I mean, I I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I love Dallas. Um, I remember as a kid, it was on late and, um, you know, my parents wouldn't let us stay up that late, but they'd let us stay up just to watch the, the opening sequence, the theme song. Um, yeah. cause I just, I just loved it so much, but yeah, you can get it on iTunes. It's available. <laughs> but the first thing I ever wrote and published was a, uh, sort of a parody of, of Dallas, the, 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 those primetime soaps. Um, oh yeah. How uh, great. Oh my God. And I had so much fun with it because it was a character who was, you know, he made his, made his name in the eighties on a show like that. And he's trying to reinvent himself in the, in the two thousands. Um, mm-hmm. But it, uh, it, I had so much fun writing that because I got to throw in like every 80s reference I have in my head. Yeah, which, it's um, so fun when you get to swim in, in pop culture nostalgia like that. I mean, it's what Stranger Things is about for a lot no, of people. Absolutely. I would love to. I'd love for there to be a Stranger Things of those nighttime soap operas, because when they try to reboot them, they just try to make them modern. Right. Which yeah. is not really it doesn't scratch that itch for me. No, not at all. How about music? What were you listening to growing up? I was listening to a lot of ABBA. I was an ABBA freak as a kid. Um, And then I, when I was trying to acclimate to a new educational environment, we moved to New Orleans when I was 10 years old. We left San Francisco behind in 1988 and it was total culture shock for me, just total. But I tried to get in with the Motley Crues and the Warrants and all the sort of hair band death metal and went to a lot of concerts. And I was at a Millie Vanilli concert before their exposure as a fraud. (laughs) That was one of my, you know, claims to fame. Uh, so uh, that was really it, but I have always loved listening to dramatic film scores. And the thing that, you know, talking about not being able to anticipate pop culture phenomenon, the, the, the whole idea of trailer music that has cropped up now that there are these composers who will do original albums full of tracks that are just supposed to sound like they should go with a dramatic thunderous percussive trailer. I love it. It's great. I find it so inspiring for writing and you can pick different moods and all that sort of stuff. But give me a Hans Zimmer soundtrack any day of the week and I will yeah. be getting out the window with a tear in my eye and an idea in my head. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm there with the uh, the Motley crew. I just watched the other night. There was a uh, reels, um, something about Vince Neil. I got sucked into this two oh, yeah. hour documentary on Vince Neil and I'm like, oof. And my yeah. wife is like, this is terrible. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> I'm like, this is not terrible. This is awesome. Please I'm stop like, talking until the documentary is finished. Thank I'm you. I'm like, yeah. I want to go to the Whiskey A Go Go right now. Um, yeah. Which probably isn't too far from where you live. It's very close to where I live. It's <laughs> tiny. I think it's it's like people often get shocked by how small Broadway theaters are. They picture these giant sort of touring halls. The same is true of West Hollywood music clubs. They are tiny. I think, I think it's the Viper where you have to load in from the street. Mm-hmm. Like there's almost no, there's no alley behind it or whatever. My cousin was in a band and years ago they played the Viper Room, you know, which is where River Phoenix died. Yeah. That's a claim of fame. And there's no real load in area. So, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, last up here, because I know we have to, uh, we have to say goodbye in a few moments, but if you could write a letter to your younger self, you know, maybe it's, you know, younger Christopher who was at Brown University or maybe in high school, you, you could pick the age, but what kind of words of advice would you tell your younger self? Care less about what other people think of you and um, let go of the results. You know, I get that answer quite a bit, you know, care less about what other people think of you. Why do, why do we think, 
why do you think that you know us as adults want to say that to our younger our younger selves? Well, you know, I think as young people, we believe adults have more power over the universe than they actually do. We and, and we believe as a result that we have more power over the universe than we actually do. And I don't know if the concept of just doing your best and letting go of the rest, I didn't actually mean to make that rhyme, but it did. Um, it, it, it really, it's hard to, young people have to marshal a lot of ego because life is terrifying. And as I heard a writer, Alison Burnett, once say that if young people weren't arrogant, they wouldn't do adulthood because adulthood is kind of terrifying and it crushes a lot of what you believe to be true. So, so you, into that arrogance, you have to say, we're all kind of just doing the best we can. And there are moments like the earthquake in Turkey or COVID where your best plans don't mean anything. And all you have in those moments is how you feel about yourself, you know, and your choices. And that will always matter more than what anybody else thinks or how much you have in the bank or what they say about you on Twitter. There we go. Uh, So we've been talking to Christopher Rice, also known as C. Travis Rice. His latest novel is Sapphire Storm, third book in the Sapphire Cove series. Uh, Christopher, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.